Now we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're in the last chapter here. And thus far we've seen that Paul has addressed two issues that they wrote him about. They wrote him about the collection for God's people and the matter of Apollos. They wanted Apollos to come to Corinth. And in between these two issues, we saw last Sunday that Paul writes about Timothy's coming to them and that Paul planned to see them as well. Today we come to um, the very final verses of this book. Letters in the time of Paul, and remember this is a letter that he's writing to the Corinthian church, followed a particular format at the beginning in the salutation. You have the name of the writer, the name of the addressee, and greetings. And then oftentimes there would be some type of a, a wish from the gods or wish that the gods would uh, provide health or well-being for the person being addressed. And indeed, if you look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, that's how this letter begins. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth. So the person writing, those being addressed. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, greetings. And then we have sort of a wish where Paul says, I always thank God for you. So there is a very strict format that letters in, at that time followed. Interestingly enough, when you came to the end of the letter, the conclusion of the letter, it was a lot more fluid. People sort of made it up. They, they had their own ways of doing things. Um, there are certain elements that we would find. One would be sort of a final wish, uh, a health wish. You know, I hope that you remain in good health. Uh, the date of the letter, you know, this is written on such and such a day. And then a, con- a concluding autograph, I'll explain in a minute, and then some postscripts. You know, P.S. I forgot to mention this earlier type of deal. Paul uses some of these conventions and adapts them for use as he writes his letters. If you study his letters, and we have 13 of them in the New Testament, you will find the following aspects in his letters. Usually we have exhortations at the end. And oftentimes they're very almost like staccato, just sort of a a bunch of darts at the end, sort of do this, do this, do this, do this. These are exhortations. This is what you need to do. Then there is a a wish for peace. There are greetings, uh, sort of a final greetings or greetings from other people who are with him. Uh, the exhortation to greet each other with a holy kiss, an autographic uh, greeting, which we will see in a bit, uh, and then a grace benediction. This conclusion, however, the conclusion of 1 Corinthians, is different from his other letters in several ways. First of all, there is no wish for peace. I don't think we should make too much of that because we find that at the beginning. Grace and peace to you. Um, He inserts a word of warning in between his signing and the benediction. And it's it's a very strong warning and we don't find it anywhere else in Scripture. And then what we would expect to be the very last word, what we oftentimes use for benedictions in our services, is usually the last uh, verse of a particular book. It's, you know, grace be to you. Paul tacks something on at the end of that. And then we will see this in a bit. I think it's really significant. We will look at this in two parts. First of all, uh, the concluding exhortations in verses 13 through 18 here in 1 Corinthians 16. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. 
You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. This section here, I think we can break up into three parts. First of all, the imperatives, the exhortations, um, which I think have special significance. We find this in other letters, but what he mentions here I think is important. And then a word about Stephanus, uh, that he is due proper recognition. And then an additional word about Stephanus uh, and the others, Fortunatus and Achaicus, who brought the Corinthian letter to him. Let's look, first of all, at the exhortations or the imperatives. Uh, there are five statements or commands here, at least grammatically they're in the form of command. Do this. This is what you're supposed to do. They seem somewhat abrupt. And if we're not familiar with Paul's other writings, um, I think we will miss what he is doing here. Um, and, and particularly after First Corinthians, where people think Paul has just been a bear anyway. That he's just sort of you know, tearing people left and right and, and being somewhat merciless against the Corinthians. Um, that's not, that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is concluding his letter, but, but how do you conclude your letter and still have a, certain, a sense of urgency that you really need to do stuff? Well, you find in Paul's letters this staccato series of imperatives, um, the shortest verse in the Bible, First, Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. That's one of those things he includes at the end there. Because he's, this has been a long letter. We're at chapter 16, and people are like, you know, boy, Paul's really said a lot, and it's a lot to take in. Then he throws these darts just to sort of, hey, wake up. You really need to do these things. These are the things that are really important. The four of them, the first four have to do with being watchful and being steadfast in the faith. And then the fifth one, um, I think, sort of summarizes everything that he said in this letter. The first pair... Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith. This expression, these expressions are found uh, in various epistles. And to be on your guard or to be watchful can have one of two intents, as Paul writes. One is to watch for the second coming, that the Lord is at the door. It's, it's almost time for the second coming. The other is to be watchful because the enemy is at the door. Or the enemy may have already come in through the door and be, may be in the midst of the congregation. Given this letter, I think Paul means the second, that the Corinthians need to be on their guard. They need to understand that there are influences, corrosive influences at work in the church, and it's going to destroy this church if they are not careful. So as they are standing guard, they also need to be firm, because what if you're waiting at the door and then what comes in the door is just overwhelming? Well, you need to stand fast. We've heard this language before. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. This is from the previous chapter, chapter 15. What is worth noting here is the language Paul uses because he says stand firm in the faith. Um, not stand firm in the gospel or in the word, which either one would have been acceptable. Um, it's worth noting because there are various scholars, a lot of them in fact, who say that this idea of the Christian faith is a very late idea. And in fact, that's why some people believe First and Second Timothy is not written by Paul, because Paul talks about 
being in the faith. Well, no, here, this is one of Paul's earliest letters, and we see that he uses the word faith in this way. That for, for Paul, faith has two aspects which cannot be separated. The first, the first is the content of what we believe, and the second is the act of believing. Today, I think we only focus on the second. You need to have faith. Well, that raises the question, it begs the question, faith in what? And as Schaefer used to say, in our time, people have faith in faith. That is, they believe that it's enough to believe. No. What is it that you believe? And so for Paul, I, I think he wants to make a very strong point here. It's not enough that you have faith. It must be the right faith, and it must be the faith in the Christian message. Faith is not simply believing. It is believing what God has revealed in his word. I think I've probably told you that Norman Vincent Peale... Uh, you know, the power of positive thinking. Uh, he said that every morning before he got out of bed, he would sit up and say five times, I believe, I believe, I believe. Either three times or five times. But uh, I was wondering, well, wh- what do you believe? What do you believe? It is not simply enough that you believe. Everybody believes something. And as Christians, we can't say, well, we're different from non-Christians because we believe. We have faith. No. Our faith is rooted in God's revelation. And therefore, we talk about the faith. Our faith is in the gospel. I think that's very important. The second pair, be men of courage, be strong. And these two imperatives, it has been argued, recall from what we, something we find in the book of Psalms, Psalm 31. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Generally, when we read these words, we would think that it has to do with those facing opposition, those facing persecution. That people are going to oppose you, they might even persecute you, so you need to be strong, you need to be men and women of courage. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at at all here. I think what he's talking about is the courage and the strength to make the changes that he has written in his letter. Think a moment. Wouldn't it take courage, would you not have to be strong, to put a man out of your church who has been living in an incestuous relationship? And for us, we'd say, well, of course not. That's not hard. Think a minute. If you go back to chapter 5, the Corinthians thought this was cool. We have freedom. Look, our brother here has so much freedom in Christ that he's sleeping with his stepmother. And now they have to say, oh, by the way, we're kicking you out. Because Paul says what you're doing is wrong. Would it not take courage to allow yourself to be wronged and not go to court and sue somebody, as we find in chapter 6? Would it not take courage to change the way their public worship was being done? Because if they made a change, it would be an admission that they had been wrong. If they were going to do what Paul had instructed them in this letter, it would require both courage and strength. And so as he closes this letter, he tells them, you need to be strong. You need to be courageous. The fifth imperative is do everything in love. The first four imperatives have to, be with, have to deal with remaining faithful to the gospel. This one has to do with remaining faithful in our relationships with other believers. It echoes the language of chapters 8 and 13. You know, apart from chapters 8 and 13, we don't find the word love very often 
in 1 Corinthians. But from what Paul has written, we see that it is the key to everything he has written in this book. Everything is to be done in love, Paul tells them. Everything. All things. This stands in contrast, and let's just do a list of what we found in this book. The quarrels and divisions among them. Their attitude toward Paul. uh, The matter of lawsuits. Husband-wife relationships. The abuse of the weak by the strong. The abuse of the have-nots by the haves in the Lord's Supper. The failure to build up the congregation in public worship. If they had been doing everything in love, these problems probably would not have arisen. Certainly not to the extent that they did. So we should not be surprised that here, as Paul closes his letter, he tells them, do everything in love. Everything is to be done in love. All things. Now the first word about Stephanus. Paul writes that the Corinthians should acknowledge and honor Stephanus and others like him, such as these, Paul says, who labor among them. We find this in, other, in Paul's other letters, but this is not a mere formality here. The structure of these verses, 15 and 16, shows that Paul is putting emphasis on Stephanus. And apparently Stephanus is one who has been loyal and faithful to Paul. And no doubt he is the one who has given Paul a report of all the chaos that is going on back at the church in Corinth. The language of verse 16 tells us or shows to us that Stephanus was a leader and that the Corinthians were to be in submission to him. In calling attention to Stephanus, Paul reminds the Corinthians of two things. First of all, when Paul came to the province of Achaia, the very first converts were Stephanus and his household. Secondly, They were noted among the Corinthians as those who devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And what this means, we're not really quite sure. But I think Paul's point, while it might be subtle, is quite clear. Uh, These people are willing to serve. The rest of you are not. The rest of you are all about yourselves. You don't care about the weak. You know, you don't care about those who don't have. Stephanus and his household are those who serve in the congregation. Paul wants the Corinthians to do the right thing, to submit to such as these. Now this may surprise you, and it did me, and and I've studied 1 Corinthians before, perhaps I'd forgotten this. This is the only place in the New Testament where we find this word submit referring to the relationship between the congregation and those in positions of leadership. found that really striking because generally in the church as the church developed over the centuries with this hierarchy this gap sort of developed between those in authority and everybody else those in the pew this is the only place where we find the word submit used in this context Um, some references people misuse from Titus 3 and from Romans 13 that refers to submitting to governmental authority there are some verses that deal with respect First Thessalonians 5. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. There the focus is respect. In Hebrews, toward the end, in chapter 13, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Their authority, okay, not to them, but to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account, obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
then I think the one that everyone seems to know is Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, or for Christ. And then after that, we have wives submit to your husbands, and who, you know, the big S word, submit, everyone gets worried about that. Um, why is it that this is the only time that we find in the New Testament the word submit used in, in the sense of the church submitting to a person's uh, position as the leader? Well, you will notice how Paul refers to Stephanus and the people with him. They are those who labor among you. You are to submit to them. And what does Paul mean by this? We could spend hours debating this. But I think we should consider this. Paul wants the Corinthians to follow the lead of those who are devoted to the service of the saints and those who join in the work and who labor at the work of ministry. In other words, I don't think Paul is saying they're the boss and you're nothing. So you need to listen to them. I don't even think he's saying they're the bosses and you need to obey them, as we find in Hebrews. I think what Paul is saying is you need to imitate them. You need to follow their example. So you may remember from 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And if that's all we had, this would sound like the height of arrogance. Just follow my example. But Paul follows this up in chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul isn't saying, I'm hot stuff, listen to me. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. In the same way, he says, submit to Stephanus, follow his example as someone who is a servant, someone who gives himself to the work of the ministry. This, I think, is what Paul means when he says submit. I think we're so afraid of this word that we sort of put meaning into it that Paul does not intend. And then in verses 17, verses 17 and 18, Stephanus part two I have in my notes. Here Paul gives some personal information about Stephanus, uh, along with the Fortunatus and Achaicus, that he was glad to see them. Uh, that their presence with him made up for the absence of the Corinthians. And not all the Corinthians could come to Ephesus, but these men being there with him reminded Paul of the brothers and sisters back in Corinth. Once again, Paul says that the, the Corinthians are to acknowledge these men. Such men deserve recognition. Paul's given them recognition, and he mentions them here. The Corinthians need to acknowledge them as well. These are men worth imitating in their midst. Now we come to the final greetings in verses 19 through 24. And let's read it first and then we'll study it. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. As I said, uh, Paul follows a, a particular form here uh, when closing his letters, but there are exceptions, there are interruptions here. It isn't exactly the way he closes his other letters. 
First of all, there are greetings, and we find this in, in other letters of Paul, that the people that are with Paul want to sort of send their greetings uh, to the Corinthian believers. And when I was studying this, I, I remembered when growing up in the Philippines that occasionally my parents would get a letter from an old friend of theirs, either from the military, my parents were both in the army, or from Bible college, or from churches, and these people would have kids about my age, and, and my parents would say, oh, so-and-so said to say hi, and their kids said to say hi to you. And I'm like, I, I don't know these people. I, it means nothing to me. And in many ways, I think Paul saying, you know, the churches here in Asia say hi, and they're like, well, we don't know those people. But Paul's point, I think, is very clear. You're not the only Christians in the world. You're not the only church in the world. There are churches in Asia. And they want to say hi. They send their greetings. And if, in fact, uh, says, um, then Aquila and Priscilla, they greet you warmly in the Lord. So does the church that meets at their house. People who had never met them want to send their greetings and want to say, God's grace be with you as you continue in the faith. I think Paul wants them to look beyond themselves. Then he mentions Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Priscilla is actually a sort of a diminutive form of Prisca. It is a, Priscilla is more of an affectionate way of saying Prisca. We know more about these two people than we know about almost anyone else that worked with Paul. Uh, they were both Jews. Uh, they had lived in Rome. And then when Claudius kicked all, kicked all the Jews out of Rome, I think in 46 AD, they had to leave. And so they moved to Corinth. They happened to get to Corinth at the same time Paul did. And I think that's when they were converted. And the way they met is that Paul made tents for a living, and so did they. And so they went into business together. They worked together making tents. And uh, they were part of the work there in Corinth. When Paul left Corinth after a year and a half, they traveled with him. They went to Ephesus. And they lived there for a while. There was a church in their house, as best we can tell. Well, Paul says that there was here. Then they leave and go back to Rome because Rome is now open to the Jews again. And we know from the book of Romans that a church is meeting in their house there. And then finally, in 1 Timothy, we find out that they've moved back to Ephesus again. These people like to move. Well, the fact their, their business was making tents allowed them to sort of be on the move, that they could sort of pick up and move and transfer their business to other places. The fact that they had churches meeting in their houses wherever they went and that they traveled so much indicates that they were probably fairly well to do. Where they come, I think, into the Corinthian equation, at least in my mind, is that they were these two people were the ones who trained Apollos. They they taught him what he was lacking before he went to Corinth and sort of became a superstar among some of the Corinthians there. So the churches in Asia, Aquila and Priscilla, and now all the brothers here send you greetings. And you know what? I'm not even sure who this includes. And again, maybe the Corinthians weren't as well. But Paul finds it necessary to mention these greetings. That the Christians here want to greet the Christians over there. You're not alone. You have brothers and sisters in the faith. Then we have Paul saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. We find this mentioned five times in the New Testament. And there are indications that it was a form of greeting from the early days of the church. Whether or not it came from the Jewish culture or from Greek culture, we really don't know. In the Old Testament, 
greeting one another with a kiss is found in three contexts. First of all, with family. That is, when you when you met somebody from your family, you would greet them with a kiss. With friends, if someone was a friend of yours, you would greet them with a kiss. Interestingly enough, if you were reconciled to someone, that is, if you had had a fight with someone, the sign that there had been a reconciliation that took place, would there would, there would be uh, a kiss. Interesting, later on in the church, um, the kiss of peace became part of the liturgy, uh, as, as did the Eucharist. And so it became, okay, this is the time in church when we greet each other with a holy kiss. I, I don't think that Paul would be happy with that, because I think what he has in mind here is, is just a greeting acceptable within the culture that reflected a special relationship. In the Old Testament, family and friends greeted each other with a kiss. Paul says in the church, we are to greet each other with a kiss. I think Paul only writes this because it's acceptable at that time in that culture. I think if Paul were living in certain parts of the world today, where men and women are never even to touch, then Paul would not say, greet each other with a holy kiss, because culturally that would be inappropriate. But within the Greek culture and the Jewish culture, it is a sign that we have a special bond. There is a special relationship. Believers belong to the same family. Why is it called a holy kiss? Okay. Now, I do think that what Paul has in mind here is a chaste kiss. That is on the cheek. I don't think he's talking about a lip to lip type of kiss. But when he says holy, I don't think he means chaste. I think we go back to the beginning to what he said, that this is a letter written to the church of God in Corinth, a holy people, a holy people greet each other with a holy kiss. It's not like a special kiss. It's simply we are God's people. And you know what? I'm sure that the Corinthians greeted their neighbors or friends, or business people with a kiss. But that's not a holy kiss, because those aren't the people of God. But those who are the people of God, there is a special greeting. Then verse number 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. It was the practice in that day that people dictated their letters. You paid someone, and you would speak, and they would write down the letters. As best we can tell, most people did not have the ability to write their own letters because they couldn't read silently. We've talked about this before. Sosthenes is the scribe or the secretary who is writing this letter, and he has written all these 16 chapters. And now at the end, Paul says, OK, here, let me write this myself. And he writes it out. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. It was a common enough practice then. It was usually a sign of authentic, that it was authentic. See if I can get the word out. It was a sign or a means of authentication. Um, because you might say, well, this isn't in Paul's handwriting. How do I know this is from Paul? Here. I'm writing here. I, Paul, I'm sending you this. I write this greeting in my own hand. At this point, Paul's supposed to give the pen back to Sosthenes. And as best we can tell, he doesn't. Because... We're supposed to have the benediction now because that's the formula. And all of a sudden, Paul sort of goes off on a tangent. And he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse on him. 
a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. Okay, Paul, maybe you should have given the pen back to Sosthenes. He just sort of goes off on a tangent there for a bit. Paul writes two words here that are now sort of common uh, in the church, one more than the other. If you had the King James Version, you would find these words. The the NIV has not left them there. Um, There are two, two words here, anathema and maranatha. If anyone does not love the Lord, anathema, let him be a curse or a curse beyond him. This word appears earlier in chapter 12. Uh, Therefore, I tell you that anyone who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. That's not of the Spirit. There the word anathema appears. Here, Paul returns to the idea of being accursed, but the emphasis is on if you if you do not love the Lord. If you do not love the Lord, then anathema, you are anathema, a curse beyond you. And I think in many ways this covers much of what Paul has written in this letter. To insist on human wisdom and to be ashamed of the crucified one. You know, that's just, that's just too weird. Um, let's, let's talk about wisdom. Let's not talk about crucifixions. Is to fail to obey him is to fail to love the Lord. But I don't think Paul is focusing on their failure to obey. It's their failure to love. If you don't love, you will not obey. And if you do not love, then you're not one of God's people. You are anathema. You are cursed. And then he says, Maranatha, or the NIV translates it, Come, O Lord. It's the only place we find this in all of Scripture, this word. And therefore, we're not exactly clear what Paul intended. Because it can be translated past tense, the Lord has come. It can be translated future tense, or sort of a a cry for help, come, O Lord, you know, please come now. It could be a prayer for the return of the Lord, and we would tie that in with chapter 15, that the Lord will come, we will all be transformed. It could be tied to what he's just said, anathema, that indeed the Lord has come or he will come and the curse will be enforced. See, the power of any statement is in the consequence. The power of any law is in the punishment. See, if I say to you, don't do this, and you're thinking, well, if I don't, what will, if I do it, what will happen to me? If nothing will happen to you, then what's to keep you from doing that? If I say to you, listen, anathema, if you do not love the Lord, anathema, it's like, yeah, what's going to happen? Paul says, come, Lord. Or the Lord has come, and the Lord will, in fact, enforce that curse. You know, what good is it to say anathema if you can't say maranatha? In any case, I think at this point Paul sort of hands the pen back to Sosthenes. He's sort of got his little bit in there. And we have the grace benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This is a fitting way to end the letter because that's the way the letter began. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Grace is the beginning. Grace is the end of the Christian message. And so it is entirely appropriate that Paul opens his letter and he closes his letter with the word grace. It is the single word 
which most fully expresses what God has done for his people through Christ Jesus. But Paul's not finished. He adds one more line here to this book. And I think it makes it all the more striking that we think he's finished, but there's one more thing he wants to say. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think in many ways this is one of the most important verses of this book. Because Paul could not have written this book unless he loved the Corinthians. We have talked throughout the series as we've gone through 1 Corinthians that if I was writing this book knowing what I know about the Corinthians, if you were writing this letter knowing what you know about the Corinthians, we would have let them have it. I don't think we would have been as gracious as Paul was. We would have stood up for what is right and say, listen, you guys are wrong. This is what is right. We would have tried to correct the errors of the Corinthians. We would have made a strong, logical case for our position. But I don't know that we would have loved the Corinthians. And that would have made all the difference between our letter and Paul's letter. Paul writes what he does. He's able to write what he does because he loves the Corinthians. Um, I mean, stop and think a minute. Paul has emphasized love to the Corinthians. Wouldn't it be weird if he didn't love them? He's been telling them in chapter 13 that if you don't have love, then it's a waste. Wouldn't it be weird if he didn't say something about his affection for them? So while grace is the beginning and the end of the gospel, Paul wants them to know, I have written to you what I have because I love you. He's written some hard things. He's been sarcastic at times. He's been brutal at times. But everything that he has done, and remember one of his exhortations, do everything in love. Paul has done everything in this letter because he loves the Corinthians. And now it's one of those things, like now when you go back and look over the letter, now perhaps you see it in a different light. Now, as you rethink what we've gone through, now it doesn't seem so harsh. Now we begin to see that Paul, in fact, did love the Corinthians. And I'm glad that it's here at the end rather than at the beginning, because I think if it were at the beginning, we would spend the whole time in the letter saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't love them. But now that he's put it at the end, it allows us to sit and reflect and to go back over and to rethink the whole book. It's somewhat like, to make an analogy, the movie The Sixth Sense, uh, where at the end of the movie you discover something that suddenly changes everything else you've seen in the movie. And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that one piece of information at the end changes the whole thing. This one piece of information that Paul loves the Corinthians may in fact change the way we view this entire book and to understand that he wrote what he did because he loved them. I hope that you have learned from our study of 1 Corinthians. As I've said to you before, I think it is not only what Paul writes here, but we can learn how it is we are to study God's word, how it is we are to study scripture from studying this particular book of the Bible. Let's pray together.
Father, we don't generally associate being right with being a person of love. I thank you that as Paul concludes this letter to these people whom he loved, he tells them that he does. That what he has written is for their good. We thank you for this letter and for what we have learned from it. May we take it with us. May it be fuel for our meditation in the days to come. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.